So I guess internet that y'all know what we're talking about today. Uh, we're talking about Pacific Rim episode seven. Yep, episode seven Pacific Rim. They made seven movies in a year and a half. A year and or a half. Or less than that, even. And I got to start with, uh, um, I loved your first response. So, like before, I could watch it because they did they didn't put it out on the Xbox Marketplace for a while, and you saw it. I loved your comment was, I don't want to be a new type anymore. <laughs> I was really sleep deprived when I watched this. Like, I stayed up till midnight to download it, which is what I always do these episodes. Mm-hmm. I have done for four years now. And um, I got it done, and I like, when it was finished, that was the same day that I had to move up from university um, back to my home for the, for the summer. So I was really tired to begin with. And I'd been drinking the night before, so I hadn't gone much sleep. Wow. After all that, I tried watching it at midnight, and I got like 14 minutes in. I just went, no, I can't do it. I'm way too tired. I'm way too fucking tired. So I turned it off, like went to sleep. After about four hours, woke back up exhausted, but couldn't get back to sleep. So I was like, God damn it, I'm going to watch this really sleep-deprived. No matter what, I'm barely going to know what's happening. So eventually I just bit the bullet and watched it. And like, once it got to all the crazy new type stuff... I was already tired, but adding all that onto it, I was just like, I don't even know what's happening, really. I don't know if this is good or bad. <laughs> A lot of colors. I just saw, they just they started traveling through time. They just became the TARDIS, transformed into cloudy unicorns. Traveling over the ocean. Yeah, and I just like started laughing so much. Like the ending when giant new type cardius appears yes like baby benazir who like looks over to baby mineva and they go and hug i was just like laughing my ass off like what is happening right now my brain doesn't know what's happening i think after four years of watching this show and just getting all that and combining that being sleep deprived i was just like i don't know what to say about any of this i'm just confused and scared and shocked So yeah, that's why I had that reaction of what just happened. What is this new typeness? Confused. When were you able to scared and shocked? Yeah, yeah. That's that's our review of kind of unicorn. <laughs> when were yeah. you able to watch this? Like, because I know you couldn't watch it right when it came out. Uh, I watched it like a day or two after it came out. I don't. I don't even remember the days been blending in because it's my second week in the summer. And I guess it's Thursday. Yeah, it's Thursday. I was playing Pokemon, and Pokemon told me it was Thursday. So, wow. yeah, I've I've seen it at least four times, and I I didn't have as negative an opinion because well, I didn't actually, watch it sleep deprived. Wait, just to, I'm actually not particularly negative about it. Um, I'm just not particularly positive about all of it either. But uh, I mean, like I, after watching it, I felt like. I feel like it was a sort of same opinions after maybe episode four. It was just like, I feel like I should hate this. Like, yeah, something in four, me is telling me I should hate this, but I can't. Episode four, I still don't get most of the criticisms off. Like, I still really like episode four. Um, I don't really have an issue with much. Like, there's specific parts I have an issue with. Like, I don't like the whole Benadryl Loney thing that much. But yeah. not for the reasons other people don't like it. Other people just think it's too rushed, which... I don't actually think that is too rushed um, for what they were trying to do with Badger's character. 
it was just what they were trying to do with Bonetta's character wasn't something that I liked, which was yeah. kind of overtly pacifistic. But in terms of like taking a really large part of the novel and paring it down to a single hour and getting kind of all the beats done, and I thought episode four like was actually pretty well done. I didn't like with Bonetta, but that was their choice. But from a directing standpoint, and even from a writing standpoint, I was pretty happy with it. But I think episode seven is more a case of. I see like, what we, you mean, because I mean, like, I think it's really interesting is that you actually found the specific content of what they were doing interest, um, bad, and most other people's criticisms center on the actual um, found, like, way that it is constitu cons constituted. Totally, so, and I think we could talk about that for hours. It's not an episode four podcast, so we, we probably shouldn't. We can't. I think that episode four, there are huge, important parts of information in that episode yes. that are explained so well and so quickly. I'm thinking especially of the whole scene where they're trekking through the desert, mm -hmm. and we get the kind of entirety of, like, Zerman's backstory yeah. in about a minute. I thought that was really well done, and I think that's, like, very commendable. And I think, for, like, one of the problems unicorn sometimes is way too exposition and the characters are talking about stuff rather than doing yeah. stuff. But that, the first half of the episode did a great job of it. And the second half of the episode, I don't like the choices they made of Benadryl and Loney, but I would say that the scene between the shamble and the unicorn is actually very well-directed. Like, in terms yeah. of how the music is used, in terms of scale and perspective, I think that's a very well-directed scene yeah i mean like i can i can feel what you mean on that um but i mean like no matter what anyone can say people can say it's the weakest i was like yo but it also had like the two best scenes in gundam that i've ever seen yeah no i think so too i think but, the diner uh, and, and the trek through the desert and i don't even i think that there's really cool stuff about the the battle at Torrington. I yeah. just think it's a case of, yeah. listen, the writers had something they want to do with Benaja's character, mm -hmm. which I think to a Western perspective, or at least to like a Western anime fan perspective, is not particularly enticing. Yeah. I, 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 of, I haven't met really a Gundam fan who likes the pacifistic protagonist. Yeah. Um, I haven't either, but I think, I think having, sorry, going back to episode seven, having yeah. watched episode seven and seeing how everything was sort of wrapped up, um, and I've mar I've already marathoned the show twice since yeah. episode. Uh, I mean, I, wa I marathoned it once before it came out, and then I marathoned it after with my roommate and my buddy. And going back and seeing how it all comes up, I just felt like, wow, this show is hella redundant. <laughs> <laughs> how so? That's it's, it's, it's hella redundant because I mean, like, I was like, okay, I guess as I didn't like read any of the Wikipedia synopsis, I only knew what was in. La, um, Lapras's, I mean, Laplace's box. Sorry, Lapras's box. But yeah. Laplace's box um, was like the charter and um, the original charter in the um, Federation Constitution. But like, when I realized, oh, okay, this is going to be shit about new types. All right. But then, like, all the sort of conversation about new types, because every episode, like, forwards this conversation about that shit within the context of the history and the conflict um, and antagonisms within the Gundam universe is this sort of conflict between the old types and new types or humanity and this new form of humanity. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But uh, there was like such a large chunk of like all the conversations. But uh, I think yeah, that's I, a starter thing we should we should talk about later. I think we should leave that maybe for be the last thing we talk about. But in terms of what you're saying, I mean, I think one of the things I know if you're watching Unicorn is uh, I think looking back on, on the whole series as a whole, 
um, episode one and two are like the perfect foundation for a Gundam series. Yes. And they like hit all the beats and they're really well directed and I think they're really well written and it was a perfect launching off point for just an amazing series. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened was the show continued mostly to be well directed but I feel like there were two issues. One of which was that they had too much material to cover in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And the other issue I think is they're just simply things they want to achieve that to a Western audience are not particularly enjoyable. One of those things I think is the, the pacifism running throughout. Yeah. Um, but I think the other part of it is that part of Fukui's writing style is that there's loaded these ideological conversations. And I was really cool with that in the first two episodes because at that point you're, you're kind of putting the foundation down for the world that, you know, the show is taking place in. So you have to have those conversations, like, where, where are we right now? What is happening? What is the show trying to achieve? What are the themes? But I think by doing that, it creates this, uh, a kind of feeling of anticipation when people are talking endlessly about, like, the world they're living in, yeah. the setting and stuff. There's a sense of, like, oh, okay, yeah, we're setting the groundwork, and soon the real show will begin. And I think the problem was there became a sense that the real show was never beginning, yeah. if that makes any sense. And it was so loaded, these conversations that were about setting, it also became, like, when are you actually going to get into the meat of the show rather than talking about what the show is going to be? That was hence why said, um, oh, this show feels redundant. Because yeah. most of it is sitting around and talking about ideologies, which is sort of how, I guess, other shows like Fate Zero. Ooh. Yeah, it is Sort of do that shit. But, uh, Ganner, Bucci kind of thing. <laughs> for sure. And, um, and I guess having sat through and marathoned all that shit, I was like, yeah, I guess I'm kind of... I just want to see uh, some new type action, and I just want to see some lights in the sky, and uh, I don't well, want to hear you talk like, about that. <laughs> I feel like maybe the, the first half of the show should have been that, and then after like episode three, that's when there should be more of like, like doing rather than kind of telling, you know? Like showing rather than telling. Um, mm-hmm. and this that is was like, the problem with episode five. Was, was that? that was also the problem with episode five, was that like, Riddy gets so much screen time in like such an inappropriate spot that sets up what Riddy has to say at the very end of the show in episode seven. And I was just like, "Yeah, I see where this is going." Ah, yeah, totally. Like yeah. another example of that is in this episode. There's a scene where the Neo Zeong, which is like the big fucking mobile armor that Full Frontal has, it's, it's a mobile armor controlled by a mobile suit. Yeah, it's just stuck in there. And it's, it's fighting the Banshee and the Unicorn, and it's like, oh, shit, like, the big fight's gonna happen. This is gonna be amazing. Like, shit, yeah, I'm really pumped up for this because we've been talking about this stuff, and the ideology, now it's ready to get the fighting done. And I remember it was like, it felt like about five seconds into the fight. It cuts away to the guy who holds Slablas' box and Maneva, and it just becomes him, like, talking, and he basically says, maybe the box won't do anything. Maybe none of this will lead to anything. It's very possible that none of this will lead to anything. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you're seeing, like, reflected off the charter, like, laser beams being shot. And for me, that brought down the entire tension of the scene, because I was like, okay, this is not the time for ideological discussions. This is the time <laughs> for fighting. And even if you do have ideological discussions, discussions don't have them be ones that are like removing the entire tension from the situation by basically saying, hey, this whole thing that you fought for might be worthless. And actually, I just, like, I... actually, I think that's interesting because now that I think about it, it's like, oh, okay. Because, I mean, I see what you mean is you want to be drawn into the fight. Yeah, totally. You want the illusion that, like, oh, my God, this is tension. You want these explosions. But, like, 
by immediately diffusing that and saying, you know what, shit ain't gonna change. It's like, I imagine, like, someone, like, like a philosopher, sort of, just like, like, rolling up a blunt and just, like, smoke is like, shit ain't gonna happen. <laughs> shit ain't gonna, shit ain't gonna change, motherfucker. And, like, that's, Fulfrano's whole thing is, like, we have, like, all this tension that builds up, but it ultimately sort of just goes nowhere. But I think, like, the first thing you said, I think, when you watched this episode to me was, like, this was good, but it was all over the place. Yes. And I think that's a good example of that, because that is a good point, you know, but it's also, like, I don't think that, like, really cohesively feels like a, a theme to me. Yeah. Because um, you do have elements like that, and you do, like, cut off some of the fights with, like, conversations, like, in episode five. But you also have tons of scenes of, like, basically, hey, look at this really cool mobile suit. Mm -hmm. Don't you want to toy up this mobile suit? Don't you want to see how cool this thing is? Like, you have scenes, like, the random Gustav Cowell on Earth that they need to be there, um, which I'm not complaining about, but I'm just saying that, like, parts of the episode feel like a toy commercial. Parts of it or at least, like, fan service to fans of the Gundam toys. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't feel like it's, like, attacking this idea. Or it's, like, it's not trying to alienate you, I don't think, for the most mm -hmm. part, from the action scenes. Yeah. Which, I mean, like, I suppose is a structural issue about the way it's constituted, because it's not really meant to be a property that wants to make you contemplate the meaning of violence and how we go about depicting these sorts of scenes in film. Like, what I was sort of thinking, I was like, huh, I was thinking, maybe if you just took what you said and placed it in another film, like, yeah. that would be really cool. Because yeah, yeah. that could be like something I imagine, like something I would do is like piss off a bunch of people if I ever made movies. Like <laughs> that would have worked amazingly in Gundam Double O Eighty. Mm -hmm. If like whenever there was a big fight, Gundam Eighty, it cut away to some civilians or something. Like that would make sense for that show because it's, yeah. there's a whole comment of like you can't create an anti-war film because anytime you show scenes of war, it kind of naturally glorifies it. Mm -hmm. Whereby we enjoy the spectacle and want to be eluded into the spectacle, and that's how narrative tension gets built up. But yeah. by making that tension go nowhere, but by leaving the sort of space for contemplation, it's just like that, that is a way that you can narratively and, um, I guess, filmically diffuse that glorification of war. But Gundam's never really been about that life. And I think that in Gundam Unicorn, if it happens, it was by accident. <laughs> Yeah, I think what that actually was was, hey, we have like a huge amount of stuff in the novel to get in here. Let's like, where do we put it? Well, we can just put it during an action scene, and by doing that, we can also save the animation budget by cutting away to you know pretty static images of like in that scene, just yeah. the chart where you see like reflections of it, or in the scene of like Rid like when Riddy is talking to five, it did seem like it was very static camera angles, almost as if, like, which scene can we spend the least amount of money off in this episode? Probably this one, this info dump. Yeah, and I mean, like, I think it's funny, also, because um, I went over and I watched this with some friends, and my friend had his girlfriend over, and she was just like, this is the last episode, so I'm not going to know what's going on, right? So she still hung out, like, I guess girlfriends do, or partners do, and, um... She wasn't really paying attention. She was like making a couple comments, but a friend of mine said, "Yeah, you can just join, enjoy the action scenes." I was like, "No, you can't enjoy the action scenes because they're they're not that good." No, they're except for the grunt fights. It's so strange. Like I think episode one and two have like some of the best action scenes in Gundam, and create this real sense of peril, and they felt big and large. And I think.
from that point onwards, there were a bunch of really well-constructed scenes in terms of how music was used and stuff like that. But yeah, you were right. The mecha action in itself. I mean, I was really confused and taken when I was watching Gundam Build Fighters. I still haven't seen, but what I saw of it just had some of the most amazing, you know, intricate, just incredibly well-choreographed action scenes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why are these so much better than the movie budget OVA? <laughs> I see here. It doesn't make sense to me. One of the arguments I've heard is um, is that it might be a case of animators would rather work on TV shows because it's more like the work you get for a TV show lasts longer, so the pay might be might be higher than an OVA. So it might be that Gundam Build Fighters and even stuff like Gundam Age got like better battle choreographers for that reason. Yeah. But it seems weird to me that the final episode, the one where, like, you know, because of, like, all the ideological conversations and stuff and just the nature of the show, it's all been building to this final big episode. And I wasn't really taken with any of the combat. I couldn't really picture a scene of combat that I really liked. Mm-hmm. Can you think of, like, a fight scene as one that really blew you away? That blew me away? Yeah. Um, I mean, like... I guess I guess it didn't really blow me away too much, but I think my favorite fight was like one where you had I guess one of the Xeon suits latch on to the nail Argama and yeah, like, he just starts punching things. And I'm just like, that's like something I see in Gundam Build Fighters. What is that doing in here? That that was my favorite piece of action as well. Um, yeah, that was pretty cool. I mean, it's one of those things where I guess maybe maybe one of the cool things about like Gundam Unicorn's action is that there's lots of little things that you wouldn't notice at first. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't notice that they animated, while that thing latches onto the ship, there's, like, a guy in just a pilot suit underneath the mech, like, on the bridge, just, like, fly away as it's latching on. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. It's, like, a lot of attention to detail. Um, and, like, there's that one frame where we see, like, an actual unicorn in the new type clouds, <laughs> where I, I went in and I spent about, like, 15 minutes just, like, looking for that single frame. Well, the whole the whole thing is like I feel like the show itself is filled with details and is always incredibly well animated. Mm-hmm. I just never found it in terms of pure action to be that well choreographed. Yeah, half so two at least. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another point that's gonna be there. Oh yeah, I mean I, I hate to be the guy who's constantly comparing it to the book, but one of the things I find just so odd about Gundam Unicorn as the OAV series, looking back after having read the book, is <clears throat> past episode two, or maybe episode three actually. Mm-hmm. every single book would have one amazing action scene and everyone would be like oh I can't wait to see that action scene in the OAV and it would always either be removed or shortened like in episode 4 everyone was waiting for the Takara fight because it's the best most interesting fight in the entire book it's this fucking Shamblo like massacring Takara for hours it like tears down a skyscraper and it's like GM freeze using like apartment blocks for cover and stuff. It was amazing. And for some reason, they like made it four minutes at the start of the episode and made Torrington a really huge fight. Or like in episode five, in the books, there's like an amazing part where um, they like destroy the engines of the Garuda and they all have to like jump off before it smashes into the ocean and explodes. And in this episode, there was a massive fleet battle between like a giant Federation fleet and the remaining sleeves units. And it's like the Nail Garm has to like traverse through it while this stuff is happening. Yeah. Well, I don't understand why for like a big budget OEV, they would always remove the coolest, most interesting stuff in terms of action from every volume. It, it didn't make sense. Well, I mean, what you're saying about how 
its choice in fights doesn't make sense makes sense but this is all you needed to make the toys oh so you're saying it's a case of like okay as long as we have these kits in they'll sell we don't really need to worry about yeah. i mean that's probably what it is it's probably more like if okay we could construct this really huge action scene but let's just showcase off the hducs we want to sell yes but at the same time, then, like, why does Gundam build fire have such amazing, intricate action scenes? I also, well, I mean, I feel like Gundam Build Fighters was just like, well, this is going to be a toy commercial. You know what to put in here. Um, Go nuts. You know. Yeah, because I mean, yeah. I know that's like that's the case with the Zaku. Was oh, it's the enemy unit. No one's going to care. Do whatever you want, and then they ended up making like the most iconic mobile suit ever. Is um, oh. I was like, oh, okay. So, I mean, like, that's sort of, like, the ironic thing of, like, genre films is, oh, um, you already know what's going to happen in this genre film. And so, like, a director might be like, okay, I guess I'll do whatever I want surrounding that. Yeah, yeah, it's often the stuff that, like, slips through that people, la that people latch on to the most. Yeah. Um, yeah. In know. a way, like, it, it's odd, because I feel like with Gundam Unicorn, you have these very, like, earnest, sort of well-written character moments, like the diner scene and all this world-building, mm -hmm. that is an example of something that in the original Gundam you never had enough time for because the toy companies don't give a shit about your fictional space universe nerd. Yes. Like, <laughs> why include that? And now you're able to, which is, like, in a way quite, like, nice artistically that they were able to, to do that. And, like, in this thing that, <clears throat> by all rights, should be a toy commercial... They're actually spending time on world building and setting and things, but it's odd to me that they pair off of like the fight scenes, which often do feel like they're kind of selling these model suits in a very you know, in yeah. a very commercial kind of way, like showing off the barrel in, in episode four and things. I mean, I do got to say though that like some of these guns just look stupid. Like the um, there's that one gun that um, that uh, one of the Echoes. Jeegans was using, and it's like a sniper rifle of sorts, but like it's blue and it looks so stupid. Oh, that's from Zeta Gundam. Yeah, it looks so stupid. Like, why is it blue? The well, mobile suits. The mobile suit is like brown and gray. Because it's from Zeta Gundam. They literally just took a gun from Zeta Gundam and slapped it to Unicorn. They couldn't have repainted it. They were repainting, <laughs> um, Gear Zulus. I don't know. I mean, I guess so. I, I, I didn't have a problem with that, but it's like one of those things where it would have fit fine into build fighters, but yeah, in, in the show takes itself so seriously, a big blue toyetic looking gun does look a little bit silly. Yes. I mean, it's often called the Hyper Mega Rocket Launcher or something, right? There's a Hyper Mega Particle Cannon, as you're thinking of. It's on the Nail Arkema that they use to destroy the fleets and basically no, make I know, the fleet by boring. Isn't that also what that blue gun is called? I think it's called, like, the Hypermaker Rocket Launcher or something. <laughs> yeah, it's got a really silly name. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I actually read a really interesting, like, blog where a guy was talking about Gundam designs. And he brought up something I never thought of before, which is that, like, when you look at the original Gundam, it's very simplistic. And essentially the GM are, like, like guys in spacesuits with little lasers. Like, that's what they are. They're just, like, little NASA spacesuit guys from, like, maybe, like, a 1950s, like, pulp novel. And the Xeon suits are evil Cyclops monster creatures. And the idea was, like, 
if you were just watching this episode 40 or whatever and you come into that episode, you know who's a good guy because, hey, it's the spacesuit guy and the yeah. evil green monster of one eye. Yeah. Talking about how, like, in Unicorn, it's almost gotten more ridiculous because um, they're still using associations, but the associations are like, hey, look how adult this show is. <laughs> this, like, mech has a sniper rifle and a silencer and its laser gun. And it's, like, it becomes more ridiculous by trying to create associations with stuff that are more mature, like yes. and stuff. Like why? Like there was like there was. Uh, uh, I like this, but there was a Jago in this episode with a handgun with a like scope on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean there is that uh, Jago in, uh, in a couple times in other episodes. It's like, yeah, I mean that's pretty cool. I like that. <laughs> I like that too. I don't have a problem with it, but it, it's funny. It, it, it's interesting. That that's their way of being more mature and actually kind of makes it more silly. <laughs> yeah. I, I also thought it was strange that, like, you have the full armor unicorn, which is filled with missiles and Gatling guns and rocket launchers. And it's like, not exciting. Well, it wasn't exciting because it removed the fucking fleet battle, which is why it was there in the first place. Which, again, is like, God damn it, Sunrise, why remove the reason this suit is there? If you want to sell the suit, show it doing the awesome thing it was designed for. Well, they know we're going to buy it anyways, because people I know. are already buying it. I mean, that's the problem. We like the design. Before even the episode comes out, we've decided we're going to buy it. So it really doesn't even matter what the fuck it does in the episode. And literally, all it does is, like, miss while firing at the Banshee. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, fire at, like, four different Zeon suits. Anyway, the, but the problem I have with it is, like, it's the most offensive-looking weapon in, like, all of Gundam. And you give it to the most pacifistic character in all of UC Gundam. Yes. From a writing standpoint, that doesn't make sense. Like, people complain about Gundam Age a lot, but, and I don't like Gundam Age, but to give it its due, in the third arc, when they had the pacifist character, they simply designed a Gundam which, like, could chop off individual limbs and that it made sense to be pacifist for. You know what I mean? Yeah, they didn't give it, like, um, two giant um, NASA-looking thrusters and, like... And fucking um, Gatling guns! 20 guns, like, 20 Gatling guns and, like... A fucking axe. Yeah, like, why? If if you're going to give it to the pastor's character, wouldn't it be better from a writing standpoint to, like, write for him a mobile suit that would make sense for a pacifist? Yeah. Like, and that scene I thought was ridiculous when it's fighting the Zeon suits, and it's just firing Gatling guns and rocket launchers, and somehow expertly disabling all the grunt suits. Like, it fires five grenades, and somehow they just hit, like, the head and the legs, and they don't hit the cockpit. And it's like, okay, so you're just bending the universe around the main character's wishes now. Like, if which he is, wants it Which is what wish. happened in Gundam Age. Yeah. Well, I never, I never got that far in Gundam Age. Well, that, that's exactly what happens in Gundam Age, is when, like, I only watched, like, the last two episodes after Kyo went all super pacifist and, and like, visited the Middle East planet yeah. on Mars. But, uh, I mean, basically, he was just bending the rules of the universe. And that's basically what I thought for all of Benajer's fights, is that all they're doing is just, like, with the Kiriko riding the ma- magic into everything he does. Yeah, like, they, in the first two episodes, I feel like they establish this universe they're in. They establish the rules, and, and the scene of them establishing the rules is he fires his beam magnum, and it's so powerful that it just grazes a Zaku and it blows up. And Zulu. A Girazulu. In this episode, he's able to like fire and just like expertly cut off limbs and stuff. So it's like it's actually like conflicting with previously established stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And there isn't even like a scene, just just put in a scene of him being like, I'm dialing back the power of the beam magnum so that I can like, you know... Not kill not, people. Not kill people. Even that I would prefer than just the universe bending around Benazir's will. Yeah? And I a good example... Of, sorry, go on. Go on, no, go on. A good example of that is like Full Frontal. The, in the novels, he fucking impales Full, full Frontal with a beam saber. But in the show, he's a pacifist, even more so than the novels, so they can't have him do that. So what happens? Full Frontal literally just dies. Mm-hmm. Like, his suit just crumbles away and he dies. And they, they rob... Like, it's such lazy writing. Because, oh, we, we don't know how to handle this moral choice. We'll just have Full Frontal die and remove that choice from Benazir's hands. Yep. I didn't say I was like, complaining about that, but to me that's like the biggest problem with the writing in the entire episode, is how they wrap up the Full Frontal thing. Because that's just, like, the, the I think it has some good writing, but the worst writing is stuff to do with Benazir, and I thought that just, like, encapsulated all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's, well, not Benazir. Benazir's final thing was using his new type powers to disable, like, the incoming um, general rebel fleet. And yeah. And it's just, like, so anticlimactic. It really was, yeah. I, I thought the stuff in the colony laser was anticlimactic. Like, of all the ways you could have shown that, it was like a little CGI circle. Two little CGI circles. And the music was amazing and stuff and all that, but the actual way it was shown visually wasn't that cool to me. Yeah. No, I, I did... Oh, sorry, I was, it was hella boring. I literally expected, like, a giant circle around the entire colony and like there'd be like this whole light enveloping yeah. everything and there'd be like the nail argama behind him and everyone just like Benaj are saving us again and like it would be like the moment in like Char's counterattack where like this green light just comes yeah. in and saves the day and Benajer disappears in a new type heaven or something like that. I mean that's what I pictured too and I, I think I mean visually it's all interesting but what doesn't help too is you have before they do it Riddy and Benazir are talking, and they're not saying, holy fuck, there's a space laser that's going to incinerate all of us, shit, 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 what do we do? Instead, what they're saying is like, man, it's really hard to be a father. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, now is not the time for theme. Like, you've established this theme. The theme is already there. You don't need every single character to explain this to us. There is a time when things can actually happen, and characters can talk about what they're doing, and not, like, what the author is trying to impart in the viewer. But, Andy, if we didn't have that, then the scene where Benajer's dad appears in the sky and little baby Benajer goes to him, like, wouldn't make any sense. That scene shouldn't be there. <laughs> That's the worst scene in the whole movie. <laughs> I hated that. I just laughed and went, what are you doing, show? You started out so good. I never would have thought from the first episode that this show would end with giant new type Cardius holding. I never, I never could have expected that. <laughs> that feels, I mean, you could have told me after that scene that this was directed by someone completely different from the first two episodes first six episodes, and I would have believed you, because that was so bizarre to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry, this is just me ranting. Nah. Um, I think it's really interesting, though, that, um, because as much as this is, like, a grown-up sci-fi, like, political thing with, like, crazy magic and new types and about poliotics and all that, right? It's also a shonen manga, like yeah, totally. art, and not yeah. manga, shonen, 
series. And I mean, like, that scene to me is like the shonen fantasy. Because in all these shonen shows, the father's gone. Like, so much of them are gone. And when the father does, like, appear, it's always kind of weird. Like, in Dragon Ball Z, like, when Goku appears, Goku takes over the show. Yeah. Right? Because the father is a sort of mythic figure. And if we're going to deal with myths, then Banaj's ultimate fantasy is to do as his father wishes, which was to create a world with a box and that we can blah, 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 have all this possibility and like have this shit. But I mean, like, there's a figure of the father and Banaj's getting that fulfilled. But I mean, like, yeah, which is where I think Naruto is interesting because Naruto is already an orphan. But I mean, like, that's his own thing. Because I mean, like, like even in Naruto, Naruto is smarter than that because Naruto sort of gets that happen, but like his father just sort of disappears. Even in that, like, he always knows that his dad's there with him in spirit, but like that's it. But in here, it's just like live that out or something like that. He doesn't like actually get to obtain that, like, agency and get that generational thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, the last show and thing I watched was um, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. I feel like there was more of, like, a rebellion against the father in that show. And the father was, like, this kind of flawed individual. And the main character is kind of able to see those flaws and stuff and maybe have, like, a grudging sort of appreciation of him by the end. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, it felt it felt more human than this. But I think, like, in a way, what we're touching on, too, um, I, I feel like it's sort of... It has to do with Unicorn in general, where, like, the show feels very at odds with itself at times. You have the scenes in the Vist... Fam- in the, like, control base, the F control base, where they're, like, talking about the spaceship laser thing, the Grips 2 Colony laser. And the whole thing's actually quite interesting because the writing sort of feels like... a a kind of small drama. You have, like, these three central characters, really. You have Alberto, Alberto um, Martha, Martha, and, and Ronan, right. actually. Yeah, I was about to say, like, Bright's presence was, like, this almost nothing. He just sort of manages to come in and start up some drama, but he ultimately can't really disturb what um, the Viz Foundation and the Federation had going on. All he could I actually really like that. Like, I think that seems well-written, and I like that you have, yes. like, Alberto in the back and he's sort of like simmering and he knew he can have an outburst at one point mm-hmm. and you have like Ronan who's sort of more odds of himself but also willing to commit this atrocious thing you have Martha who's like the most antagonistic and you have Bright who like like you say he kind of he's he, he can sort of like he's he's not there well he's there as like a moral consciousness in a way but he's also not really able to do much throughout and it's quite a tense situation, and it, it, it's quite well written. I like the way they keep cutting back to that throughout the episodes, and that moral choice is really cool. But when you have that combined with, oh, you also have the whole thing with Benazir going around being Space Jesus, <laughs> and you know the, the whole kind of melodramatic stuff with Riddy and, and Maneva and Marida and her death, and then you know the kind of big space opera, space magic stuff, and you're cutting between like transforming into a unicorn while you fly through space. And also um, this really tense, well-written drama on Earth. To me, that all being in one episode, coming back and forth, I don't know. It made it. It made it feel kind of tonally really strange, and like you said, all over the place. To me, what's interesting is like a lot of those scenes made me think back to Evangelion. Because in Evangel- hmm? 
Um, like the scenes where they'd have the people in the control room and like, they'd be talking in oh, the various yeah. control rooms throughout the show because like the control room is like such a realistic thing where yeah. it's like here is like the real institutional struggle to keep this dramatic giant robot fight going on. Like one thing that makes sense that's very realistic. And in Evangelion, you have this like very like magical over the top fight with these creatures from uh, like other universes or like whatever like these complete non-human things right that's magical right and then you contrast that with what happens in the control room and it's just like what what's going on and like i think unicorn and evangelion it doesn't feel at odds for itself yeah like to me evangelion felt very totally consistent throughout yeah and in here is just sort of like it wants to have that but it wants to place it in a uc universe and that doesn't make sense because, I mean, you have this very, like, I guess you could say realistic um, military drama. And then within this military drama, you have all this discussion about what new types are. And when new types achieve their potential, you have this magical, mystical being contrasted with the very real limited human struggle. It's just like, what is this? And to me, like... I don't think that this was necessarily a thematic intention, but it also seems to be like something that maybe someone can come up later and just be like, yeah, this is like why new types are so awkward. Yeah. I I feel like what we're saying almost is that Unicorn is both trying to do too much and trying to do too little. Mm -hmm. Because Gundam 0080 could get away with having a very serious story in Universal Century because it only focused on that serious stuff. Mm -hmm. And by the same token... Um, something like Gundam Build Fighters or G Gundam can be as crazy and ludicrous as it wants because it's that it's like that from the start. So you just go with it. You just go, oh, cool, robots, just fight. Mm-hmm. But in this show, when they try and have all of that in one one hour and a half film, mm-hmm. there's just whiplash there. Like it just feels, yeah, it feels odd. Yeah, we have this sort of conflict between two forms of representation in Gundam because Gundam embodies all of this and Unicorn tries to embody it and it fails which is why everyone either hates or loves G Gundam because yeah, totally. like, you can either give in to the insanity or like you want something restrained and i mean like i guess to a certain extent like um it was better put together in like 0079 and in here, I think like they just sort of took that and exploded it to where it doesn't make sense anymore. Well, I think part of the issue is like, you know, this is the the what I found interesting the second time I watched this film is this film has the same structure more or less as Gundam Movie Three, um, even more so if you include Episode Six as a prelude, because Episode Six is essentially the neutral colony in the third Gundam movie. Um, it's essentially like they're all on the same ship, which is the same colony in the, in the Gundam movie. Um, and they flesh out more in episode six. So I think they have to do a better job for it in episode six, where it's like, you see both sides, um, like flesh out their positions. But in this one, you have like the battle at the start, um, between the three Xeon ships and the nail argument. That is the battle of Solomon because it ends in the same way with like, you have the conflict between Shar and Amaral, the conflict between Benadryl and Riddy, and then um, Marida's killed, which is the same as like Lala dying. Um, and moving on from there, you have the Abaraku the um, part, which is Industrial 7 in, the, in Unicorn. And the conflict going on about the Grips 2 laser is this like paired with the conflict in the third Gundam movie of the um, colony laser which they're going to use to wipe out General Revel 
and the patriarch of the of Zion. And then you also have stuff like um, the Neil Zion, obviously, is like Shar Zion, and um, all the crazy new type stuff kind of happens. But I think what's different is that the Gundam movie was three hours. Yeah. So you could have that crazy new type stuff and well-fleshed-out battles and all these conversations, and it wasn't whiplash. But when you try and do all of this in an hour and a half, basically you try and use the entire structure of that film in an hour and a half, it kind of feels like a compilation movie. Mm-hmm. More than the compilation movie did. <laughs> yeah? I, I think so. Like, I was struck by the fact that, wow, this feels really rushed. How could they have done this in six episodes? Yeah, I mean, that was my similar thoughts to... I said, uh, constitutively, it's like, what? But, uh, I don't know. Like, as much as I think that certain new type magic carpet ride is, like, oh, easy to be like, that's so dumb. Like, you went through all that shit, Shaw. You showed us all this stuff from 0079, and then you're going to present us with the stupidest argument for why you're doing your shit is because eventually like all matter in the universe is just going to stop moving and everything gets frozen. It's just like, what? You really going to play me like that full frontal? Char? Char? I don't, Char I don't, goes. Mind, I don't mind full frontals like philosophical motivation at the end there. Um, I thought it was dumb. Well, I thought some people called it nihilistic. I don't think that's what it is. I think it's, it's more cosmicism. Um, it's more what? Cosmicism. Cosmicism? Cosmicism. You've heard of H.P. Lovecraft, right? No. H.P. Lovecraft was a horror author from the 1920s, I think like 1920s. Uh, was mm-hmm. when he did like the Cthulhu stuff. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, actually, no, um, Nyaruko-san. Okay. Oh, wait, no, no, wait, I know Lovecraft. I was just like, I don't know what like cosmetism is. Right, so co- cosmetism and, and Lovecraft, if I'm pronouncing it right, is basically this philosophy that goes through his entire work. Which basically, it basically a lot of his short stories are basically sort of um, they're emphasizing the meaninglessness of a human life in a vast, unfeeling cosmos. And wow. the idea is that horror comes from the fact that the cosmos is vast, and no matter what you do, it's just like this tiny sort of genetic mutation. The very fact that human life exists is like an accident in this giant, you know infinite thing. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. That's basically what Full Frontal is saying. And in fact, one of the things I think is cool about the show in general is that it's almost using that idea, the kind of Lovecraftian cosmicism, um, in a positive way, which I'd never seen done before. Almost making it like a, like a theme about faith, where the whole thing is like, okay, on some level, you can show me the universe is going to end scientifically. You can show me all these things objectively. But even so, I know that there, you know, I can trust in things beyond that and I can trust there's things that we can't see that are positive. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of cool thematically. It's all the Because everyone always complains, oh, we know this doesn't do anything. Like, it doesn't lead to peace after this because we have F91 and victory. Yeah. And what Unicorn says at the end is like, even so, objectively that stuff might be true, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying and keep hoping. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's really cool. Like, I haven't seen that done in the show before. I've usually only seen cosmicism as like a really negative position. That actually makes me think of like. Um a little bit of what I know about Voltaire and a little bit of what I know about Camus. It's just like, yeah, even so, everything's uh, everything might be worthless, but it doesn't mean you can just go out and kill someone. Yeah. Like, these social bonds still matter. And I mean, I, like, to me, that's where I just think, that's kind of silly. It's like, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't make this less meaningful, but, or at well, least like, phenomenologically. I, I mean, I like the, the there's one thing I think they can quite, quite visually, which is like, um, before Benazir decides to, like, show the plastic box to the world, 
he says like, oh, I don't even know if new types exist. I don't know if any of this matters. And he like looks into the air and they show like four shots that I think are really interesting. Like I think one was off like the night sky in um in the car. And the other one was like Merida. Um and the other there was like one of Zimmerman and I think it was also one of his father dying. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought it was cool. It was almost like saying like it's sort of like how when he was on Earth it was meant to be really polluted and awful and it was, but he still saw like how beautiful the night sky was. Yeah. It was like totally even so, it was polluted and terrible. There was still beautiful stuff in it. And I was like, oh, cool, they actually communicated that visually. Like, this whole idea of... It's a simple theme, but essentially, no matter how dark things are, there's always some kind of positivity. Mm-hmm. And I also like that because it seemed like it was taking themes that had began in 0079, but had never really been explored further. Like, yeah. some people complained about the whole time travel thing, but Lala says in, the, in like, the Pergunda movie... Oh, I can see time. One day, all people will be able to control time. And in this movie, we actually got to see what she meant by that. Was actually controlling time? Well, yeah, we see them fucking, like, see all the time. I mean, I wish they'd gone in the novels. They actually have them, like, see Victory Gundam and Turn A and stuff. <laughs> I would fucking love that. Because I, I felt like showing us the one-year war, I was like, yeah, I've seen this being reanimated before. Show me F91. Show me Victory. Show me Turn A. Show me Shar's counterattack again, please. But no, we were showing Shar's counterattack. We were, we were. I mean, I just said that, but uh, okay. um, I think like, yeah, I I see what you mean by that, but I mean like, I feel like by making it just what Shar has experienced, that uh, changes what they did because by implying future, that implies that the magic new type carp night uh, new type carpet ride that we saw, um, was something the sort of Benajer and Full Frontal's experience, and Benajer coming into Full Frontal's mind. But I mean, like, I suppose still, like, even then, with Lala and the presence of Lala and the presence of Shar, that was, like, what was embedded within his memories that could fight back and say, Benajer, blah, 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 and sort of his new type magic actually sort of overcoming himself and then entrusting Bananas the future. But, um... But I mean, um, like, I think that's a way that, like, by altering it so that he doesn't see into the future, but we only see the past, like, that can change the way that we read that. Because then it's no longer new types have this ability to overcome, but rather, um, overcome, like, space and time, but rather they overcome themselves and they have, like, a sort of presencing, which changed how I saw it. Because I think by having that novel experience, it does become this sort of godlike thing whereby humanity can evolve and overcome even the fabric of existence or something like that. But uh, Well, I think it's also a sense of objectively, no matter how, like I guess, terrible your fate seems, there might be something above that that we don't know about. Like, objectively, those things that you type can't be proven. Yeah. It's almost like an oddly religious theme, I think. Oh, it's very religious. It's I mean, a sense is, of, like, no matter what you say about the universe ending and stuff, even so, there's, like, something beyond this. Which is odd, like, I'm not religious, but I kind of responded to that. I thought that was that was interesting. And I thought something like, Japan's a really... Um, I very much doubt that Fukui's religious, and yet he created a very religious theme in this work. Yeah, well, I mean, like, whether you want to play with the terms religious or spiritual or whatever, I've been sort of rolling around with, like, Native American spiritualists and stuff. So, um, like, that just sort of says a lot about, like, why I've been absent and uh, all that jazz. But, um, like, to me, it's like, 
um, the way I see it is, even though we quote-unquote killed God, you know, like, even though humanity was supposed to forget God, like in, they were talking about in episode two, humanity still needed something in place of God, and that is they created the sort of system of government and the system of how society works as a means to guide their life. So even if there's no G-O-D God out there, G-O-D uh, still exists in the way that we interact with each other. And this is how a new form of humanism, or maybe not even a new form of humanism, but rather the structure of religion can still exist even after people stop going to church. Because those vested powers, the sovereignty of God, gets divested into something else. And that is the Republic of Zeon, that is the Federation. And that is a sort of conversation that is happening within Unicorn, was this, the sort of social interaction, becomes God. So, I, I think it's worth pointing out, too, that the fact that we're even able to have these conversations in the context of Gundam Unicorn, that is a new thing to Gundam. People don't bring <laughs> out enough the fact that, listen, Gundam Unicorn, for all its flaws, there is a lot to talk about here, and it's stuff that's intended to be talked about. Yes. Like, this is one of the most, I think, from a thematic standpoint, an ideological standpoint, probably the most interesting Gundam work. That doesn't mean it's, I think it's like flawlessly written or anything. It doesn't mean there's tons of flaws. But I think this is something new in that it, it, I think in many ways made the emphasis in Gundam not the robots, not even the characters really, which might be an issue. It made it the ideas. I mean, that should be like applauded, at least in some respects. Yeah. Even if it wasn't fully successful, this show did something that I don't think any other Gundam had done before. Yeah. But I gotta say that all that reason is the sort of reason why... Um, like some of my people who roll around in my circles say that atheists are just Christians who believed in another god, but um, but uh, yeah, that's that's its own. But that's like the whole that's an American thing to say, though, because only in America is it like right now is it like oh, if you're an atheist, like you subscribe to, or is the point right right now in like Britain is yeah. most people are atheists because we don't give a shit. Like yeah. it's a lack of anything, and you can be an atheist probably and be spiritual with that added on, but it seems like in America it's almost like, oh, I made the choice to be an atheist. Yeah. There's not enough like atheist standpoint, like households right now. Like, I grew up in an atheist household. Most people I know grew up in an atheist household. Yeah. It's not like a yeah. religion, it's just like a lack of something in a way. But I mean, it's still like a way of uh, structuring yourself and all that jazz. I don't think it is, though, because I think you need something, a lack of something isn't a structure. Like, if you're an atheist and you become like really scientific-minded, that's like a new religion. Or if you're, like, really invested in a subculture as, like, a new religion. I mean, I agree that atheism leads to another kind of religion, but atheism in and of itself, unless you, like, self-identify as that a lot, to me, isn't a structure of religion. Does that make well, any I, sense? I mean, what I'm, I, yeah, but I mean, like, what I'm saying is it's beyond belief. It's just, like, a, a way of being with others in society. I mean, like, I think we're not really disagreeing here. Yeah. I just think that we don't know how to talk to each other. <laughs> we need understanding. Yeah, like, like reach out and send some green light your way. Yeah, yeah. I just think the way atheism is, is used as a term in America seems really different than how it's used in Europe. Yeah, I mean, I don't know many people who are just straight-up atheists here, uh, because mm. most people just say, oh, I don't know, maybe, yeah. maybe not. Which, I mean, I guess if we're going to be honest is where most people really are. But, um, I mean... Yeah, I would certainly say so. But, uh, yeah. That's that's its own strange conversation that we just got to because I wanted to talk about Unicorn, which you said is pretty intense, I guess. <laughs> uh, 
hey, you know, whatever. Um, well, it's a big conversation. I feel like it's like this stuff isn't well covered by Unicorn, but the fact that the jumping off point is kind of interesting. Yeah. Very good um, show. One thing I want to ask you, there's so much to fucking talk about in this episode. Yeah. But like, full frontal. Yeah. What is full frontal in your estimation? Because I don't know who full frontal is or what he's meant to be from this episode. And I think that's a massive failing on the part of the writers. Yeah. Because with all the conversations they had and all the talking, they didn't have enough time to put in a scene which explains his origins. That's insane to me. Oh, okay. I mean, I could talk about what Full Frontal is thematically. Full Frontal is the status quo, the vying for hegemony between the um, space noids and the people on Earth, which like is a reality, which sort of touches on surrealism. But I think Full Frontal, the character, as in how universe works i was just like is i think he's a is, is he a ghost <laughs> is, is he a ghost are we looking at like a ghost of a man are we i mean that is a problem like if we don't know who the primary antagonist is that's an issue of the writing i think yeah and, like, someone translated apparently handed out the script of the premieres and someone like was talking about what it said in Japanese on, on M, on the M board on 4chan. Yeah. And apparently it says underneath when Slayambis says you really are a ghost, it says something like he says this with utmost sincerity, as if to suggest that he really is, in fact, an actual ghost. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's crazy. That's so dumb. There's no way that can be what it is. What if it is, Andy? I don't know. Did my the mecha board have to go to like the paranormal board and just be like, yeah, it's like everything on the paranormal board is just like, can't we summon full frontal? <laughs> can't yeah, yeah. we summon Char? <laughs> Bring him back. I want to have new type sex with lava. Yeah, I my feeling was that he was because Maneva says that you're like an artificial human, and I think Banada says the same thing. Mm-hmm. My fear, which is just as dumb, is that he is an artificial vessel designed to be like full frontal by the sleeves, who was then by like literally inhabited by the ghost of Shar. <laughs> because he says it was not me who wanted to go steal Laplace's box. I don't know why. Like he basically says, like there's something inside me now. I don't know what it is, and it wanted to come here. And then at the end, Lala like taps him on the shoulder, and you see Shar's ghost come out and fly away. <laughs> so I think literally what we're meant to think is that he is a like odd artificial human who Shar like found and like flew inside of. <laughs> <laughs> I I was just thinking about it like within Shar's memory is this spirit of Shar, not a literal ghost, but the spirit of Shar that by going to New Type Universe and by having the warmth of Banajer awaken what was lost within Shar, and then, like, the ghost of Lala came in, and it was just, like, or basically full frontal's mind. It was just like, nah, I gotta let it all go. Let me destroy the Neo-Zeong and um, trust, <laughs> entrust the future to Benajer Lynx. Well, that's the dumbest thing ever in both our estimations. <laughs> both our estimations are the dumbest shit. <laughs> Yeah. Do so you think that he came back from D type Evan and became full frontal? Is that what you're saying? No, I was just thinking that nah, I was just thinking he was a vessel filled with like the brain or memories of Char 
And even within the memories of Shar, there's something that wants to believe in Benajer, and that's what they enable. That's what they awoken. That I guess he lost because he was still like a robot working on programming. All right. Well, either way, this is shit. This is the shittest fact story <laughs> I've ever heard. And the fact that they couldn't have devoted at least like five minutes in episode six to him saying, "Yeah, I'm a robot," or like I actually thought, by the way, it was going to be a robot when like his helmet started shining and he was controlling Neo Zeong, I thought it was going to turn out he was like a cyborg creature. It would be pretty hilarious. And I'm still not sure. I think he still might be. I'm not entirely convinced either way. And his programming left. I yeah. don't know. It could be like a robot that Shard's ghost flew into. To me, thematically, that makes sense. But plot-wise, it's really silly and dumb. <laughs> That's bad writing, I think. They should have explained who the fuck he was. I mean, I feel like if we just think about art more, we'd just be like, that's really stupid. To just yeah. have a dude... I mean, like, I, I think thinking about um, uh, Cardi's Vist in the Sky actually makes me think of an old German film from, like, 22 or whatever called Vampire, where there's, like... like, a dude in the sky who's meant to be the sort of calming father figure... Versus the menacing, overbearing mother figure who's a vampire. And there's, like, that would be embodied by Martha, who's this very real thing who wants to, like, sap away with this parasitic relationship with the Federation and continue the status quo and continue feeding off of everyone. And then here is, like, Ghost Cardius, who's just, like, yo, understanding and future and warmth. Yeah, but I still think that's really dumb. Yeah? <laughs> like, I get what the L says thematically, I just think the way it's done is really silly. <laughs> like, sure, you can say that Cardius is, like, this father. And I think all of that is sort of communicated pretty well when you see, like, the ghost of Cardius after his butler is, like, knocked off. Remember when he's, like, the butler? Yeah, like, yeah, Gal. Yeah, and Gal, like, sees a spirit. I think that all communicated that fine. If you if you really want to delve in and look at what Cardius means to the narrative, you have some stuff like that to go, oh, yeah, I don't think we needed giant ghost Cardius in space. I think we did. Much less <laughs> I don't. Your, your four-year, seven-and-hour, half-long Gundam series <laughs> with ghost Cardius. Ghost Cardius. Isn't it sad, Andy? Yeah, it is sad. It is sad they chose someone storyboarded that and thought that was a good idea. You know, it was even sadder was that Ghost Loney didn't appear. They should have had like the Ghost Everyone appear in that scene, like in like at the end of Zeta. Actually, like, I would have liked that more. I would have been okay with that. That would have been pretty cool. It was like all these new type ghosts just being like, "No, fuck you, Jared," whatever. <laughs> that was the same thing with like the going through time scene. I like the idea of that scene. I just think they showed it in the dumbest way possible <laughs> by having Neo Zeong, which just looks like a giant CGI, like, I guess, is it meant to look like Shiva or something? That's, I mean, Shiva was just a name that popped up in my head. Well, but it has, like, only arms and stuff, which does kind of suggest, like, some yeah. sort of history. And you have the halo around it. This weird CG construct grabbing onto a unicorn and just full probably like, I'm going to show you the future. Mm-hmm. Rah! I got to go back. I think it's interesting that we have a mobile suit called Kshatriya, which is one of the four Varnas, the social orders of Hindu society. Isn't so, Sanatju one of those two? Uh, let's look that up. I'm going to look that up. But, uh, I mean, like, in this whole 
thing about Hinduism, Sinanju. Uh, it's like a martial art. It's like the sun's. I'm a, this is a Wikipedia page, by the way. It's the okay. sun source of all martial arts in a paperback series. Okay. Oh, actually, I might ruin this for you a little bit. I think the Kshatriya is also from that series. Oh. So it might be a reference to that. But I mean, like, the thing about Hinduism still stands. Yeah, yeah. No, it does. It's a symbol of the destroyer. Okay, Shinanju teachings. Here are some famous teachings from Wikipedia. Let your opponent point you to the way to overcome him. The most dangerous man is he who does not appear dangerous. A man who cannot apologize is no man at all. Everything is a weapon in the hands of a man who knows. One cannot sew a silk purse from a sow's ear. That's, that's a hilarious pun. But, uh, yeah. One cannot fit the ocean into a brandy shifter. One cannot make a diamond out of river mud be happy with a brick. What? I don't know. Oh. I don't know what the fuck that means. What I mean is... Uh, one cannot make a diamond out of river mud. Be happy with brick. Oh, yeah, this guy. He's just like, yo, she got the gun eye, whatever. You got it. Oh, wait, it's like, use it like you use the resources you have? Yeah. Okay, okay. Just, just make a brick out of river river mud. Okay, I like it. That sounds like a Shar thing to say. I thought the second one sounded pretty full funnily. Yeah. I'm going to call him Shar 2.0, the ghost. Yeah. They, they maybe should have changed his name for the series, too. I am Shar. But, uh, uh, oh, um, so Shar and Amro are confirmed dead now. Yep. So I'm, I'm glad about that. Because I fucking hated when people would be like, no, they could be alive. Mm -hmm. Always, no, they're dead. All right? Just let them be dead. But they're not dead. They're dead. They're, they're alive within death in New Type yeah, Heaven. They're, they're having like a magical freeway in New Type Heaven. Mm -hmm. And Lala is just giggling for all time. Yes, like the child she is. Yep. That's creepy. I thought it was cool that Lala came back, actually. I wasn't, like, amazed about hearing Amro for some reason or seeing Char. It was seeing Lala that I was like, that's kind of cool. You know what's crazy? Was I watched the English dub, and to me, in the English dub, it didn't seem clear that Amro was there. I could hear yeah. full frontal, and I could hear Lala, but, like, only by watching the Japanese dub was I able to think that the green light there was Amro. In the English, I thought it was, like, Marita or something. Well, you do hear... A third voice in the English dub, yeah. but they didn't bring back the guy who voiced Amaro in any of the previous productions. Yeah. So yeah, there was no way from that to know that it was, it yeah. was Amaro. But in Japanese, we were like, oh, that's Toru Furuya. Oh, there's a Shuichi Ikeda. Okay. Yeah. This makes sense. It's um, funny where like we know the Japanese voice actors more than these yeah. new folks. Uh, it, well, there's something else too. Oh, yeah. Um, People are trying to suggest, though, that Amro is still alive because you don't see the ghost. Wait. Nah, he's dead. He's a new type heaven. Yep, that's just people holding on to hope. You're holding... What they need to be waiting for is when Camille makes it back. Yeah, that'll never happen. It'll be the greatest show. It's going to be, like, immediately, like, the next after G-Reco. They're, like, after Unicorn, where... Like, they tell the story of how, like, Mineva and all of them die. There's Camille just hanging out. I was like, what's up? I got back I to normal. I am a little bit curious, like, where they want to go with UC. Or, like, where they want to go with Gundam right now. And if they have, like, an idea of where to go with Gundam. Because yeah. I feel like 
the TV shows aren't being particularly successful. Then you have these incredibly successful movies. But, like, after the origin, like, what do they do? They just keep, like, getting any sort of UC or UV they can. I don't think the origin will, like, I don't, aside from the origin of Unicorn, I don't think any of the other, like, UC stories will be as huge as Unicorn was. Because Unicorn just has a very big, different storyline. Like, I don't think anything else can really beat for the fans, like, a hundred-year conspiracy and all that stuff. I don't think, like, Hathaway's Flash have quite the same pull that Unicorn would. I mean, I don't even know what Hathaway's Flash is. It's the one where um, it's all about, like, Bright Sun becoming a terrorist. Oh. Like, fighting on Earth. Oh, that's, that, well, that could be, like, really cool. That oh, I, like... think, I think we'd love it, but I don't know if it would be as successful as Unicorn. That's true. I mean, like, I think that would be cool among, like, maybe, like, activist circles and stuff. Because, like, they could do, like, some BLA stuff where, like, they get caught and there's a court room trial and, like, the entire trial is just, like, them being, like, the Black Liberation Army just being, like, the pigs, man! And, like, have a four-year-old come in and just be, like, in a court and the judge walks in at the same time and the four-year-old says, is that one of those fascist pigs? And everyone in the audience lying and, half, like, Hathaway's is <laughs> in, like, it's, like, one of the weather underground... It's like, I was a getaway driver. <laughs> what are you referencing? Um, the Black Liberation Army uh-huh. was, like, uh, in the 70s. They, like, yeah, rob sure. banks and stuff and, like, kill cops. Like, every time a black person was killed, they go out and, like, shoot a cop or something. And then, like, this was, like, what would happen in the trials. Instead of defending themselves, they were just like, yeah, all y'all are fascist pigs and stuff like that. So um, I think that would just, like, be really hilarious. I mean, yeah, um... Have you ever heard of Louis Thoreau before? What? Louis Thoreau. Louis Thoreau? Yeah. I know he's Henry a, David Thoreau. Uh, yeah. No, he's, he's a British um, documentarian, and, like, he, he does kind of just show us, like, how wacky America is. Ah. But every now and then he'll do a show about, like, the Black Panthers or, like, something like that, and it's always the most awkward thing to watch because he's the most nebbish white British guy ever. And it's just... I'll show you a video. It's really... It's so cringeworthy to watch. Uh, okay, I guess I'll watch it after we're done having this conversation. Okay, where were we? Oh, yeah, Hathaway's Flash. Do you know I the guess... ending of Hathaway's Flash? The what? The ending of Hathaway's Flash? No, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about it. I just... Oh, okay. Hathaway. See, I kind of hope it's made because I think you'd like the ending a lot from what I've heard about it. It's <laughs> okay. got, like, the grimmest, darkest ending. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay. But, like, it's not... Gun of Unicorns kind of feel good. Like you said, it's, like, all the shonen stuff to it. And I feel like if they want to recreate the success past origin, they'd kind of have to try and make another Gun of Unicorn, I think. Yeah? Make another show about Zeon Rebels and... A tribute to all Gundam. And I think after a while that would become tiring. Like, I liked Gundam Unicorn. I don't really want more Gundam Unicorn. That's true. I mean, I think I sort of want, kind of want to go back to the Shonen stuff. Because uh, my friend had me read this uh, speech that Ralph Ellison... You know who Ralph... Oh, yeah, I told you about Ralph Ellison earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'll explain to the internet who Ralph Ellison is. So Ralph Ellison is this pretty cool guy. Um, he's a black writer from Oklahoma wrote, like, one of the most famous novels of the 20th century, The Invisible Man. And he gave this speech at West Point that I think that's just, like, sort of perfectly describes some things or maybe interacts with some things that happen in shonen anime. And that 
um, he's describing um, Invisible Man. He says Invisible Man is a coming of age story. Um, it's sort of lack in context. But in his speech at West Point, um, he talks about how functionally what like culture and what tradition are. And culture and tradition, at least in the American context, is jazz. Because we sort of just get what we're handed back from the people um, of our generation before us. And we know that the world we have is obviously not the right world. And that ultimately our task is to try and make the world, um, maybe the world to come, or our world now, make sense. Because as it is within the status quo, we have unevenly distributed things and people aren't getting enough. Um, and we see this play out in Gundam Unicorn. And I think what um, Ellison is describing is sort of, I guess, relevant towards the discussion of Shonen. And I guess more so to the discussion of what happened in Unicorn, probably more so than a lot of other Shonen anime. Because, I mean, even within this coming of age, you also deal with myth and how myth and story and novel writing, I guess just writing in general, is um, meant to play out. Because I think what's interesting about Unicorn is why everything's so ideological is because it was written by this super um, ideological, and I guess it's totally appropriate to call him Japan's Tom Clancy dude, whereby the sort of the, the goal of the novel writer, as Ellison says, is to try and reduce the complexities of the world in order to show one person's view. And this person's view we see is like Fukui, like play out. And I think that's just sort of an interesting thing that I at least at some point want to discuss on this show. But uh, in, in that, um, I have a few things to say about that. I mean, in that reading, would you say that like the father is Earth and the son is space colonies? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But I don't necessarily understand why. The, the director from the start said, oh, father, son, that's like what this is about. And like in an interview of Anime News Network, they asked him for any comments. And he said, like, oh, I just really want people to enjoy Gunnam Unicorn. I think if you look at it, it is like a great story of fathers and sons. And I was like, I don't really see that so far. I mean, there is Cardius, there is the whole Zimmer thing, Zimmerman thing, but why is the whole father-son thing now particularly important for Gundam? And the only thing I could really see when it came down to it was this idea of, like, the colonies and the colonizer and the kind of Earth Federation being the one in the position of the father and the... Uh, yeah, the colonies being the sun. But I don't really know where you would go with that. I mean, I think that's also just a sort of general comment on anime, because in so much anime we watch, the father's missing. Yeah. Right? The father's either busy off working, so busy that he can't see the children, or um, dead. That happens in a lot. You get a lot of orphan characters, um, which is, I guess, how uh, there's potential um ground for black studies to interact with um talking about anime because that's something that we talk about a lot um within black studies and a lot of literature on the black community is um the the missing father as what um some presidents and uh economic advisors to presidents have said about the black community in america but i mean i think that's at least interesting because, I mean, like, in a lot of anime, like, the other giant robot anime that's like, has this theme of father and son that, that comes to mind 
when we have this conversation or when we're we're talking about this is giant robo yeah i was gonna say that too um and i think that show actually uh, does it better to be honest it does uh, <laughs> i think the f- i i if you didn't have at the end really saying the whole oh this is what what fathers always do da, 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 i never would have saw that as a theme um but in giant robo i think that comes out very clearly that and it's interesting you say the whole thing of the father being absent in shonen anime um in giant robots facts that you only see his father in flashbacks mm-hmm. that somehow makes it like a larger part of dice of daisaku's characterization well we see the father appear at the very end when daisaku climbs into um giant robo's broken eye it's like oh so i mean i can sort of see where like someone wanted to throw that into this episode of unicorn where it's like Banajer jumps into his father's arms like Daisaku jumps into the giant robo. And yeah, it's like so much, it feels so much better in giant robo when that happens. Yeah? I think it's partly because tonally giant robo was always fucking crazy. Yeah. So when you reach the climax of giant robo, you're like, yeah, bring the craziness. I want all this craziness. Um, Whereas with Unicorn, it's like, what is this doing here? I think it's also funny that... um, like, we mentioned that Riddy just says that small thing because, like, I can see why you would, like, react against it, but I was just like, a friend of mine, actually also an older friend, like, a couple of years older than me, also said something very similar to me when I was commenting on something my mom was saying. It's like, yeah, parents never tell you this until, like, very much later. They always withhold information. It's really weird. I, uh, I, I don't like, I like the way that conversation is written. I just don't like where it's placed. Yeah. Um... I think it's actually quite heartfelt and sincere, and, and I like that. And, and I do think it works with really has such a fractured relationship with his father, and like he's clearly, you know, his his character from for three episodes or so is wrapped up in guilt because of what his father did. And I was like, oh, that's like quite nice, and it, you know, it's quite kind of twee and precious, but yeah. nice. Just I mean, maybe like, don't do it right before the colony laser. Yeah. I mean, I just sort of liked it because it was just like, oh, okay, yeah, Reedy and. Banajer and their friendship, which is, I think, really gay. But uh, I much preferred seeing them gang up and being friends and seeing them be antagonists towards one another. Yeah. I wish that could have happened. There's a lot of things I wish could have happened earlier. For instance, like, Marita shouldn't have died in this episode. She should have died in episode six. Episode six. <laughs> because it just drags down the like pacing of that action scene to have her die there. To me, the way that that scene even went down didn't make any sense. So I was just no, like, it didn't make any sense. You're right. It was a thing of this happened in a novel, so that's happened here. But like, why does Marita just accept death in that scene? Yeah, I was like, is Marita trying to do like what Benaja did? Is she gonna like open the cockpit? Because I think if she did that, like that would have just been like, it's like damn, this is what motherfuckers think about opening the cockpit in the middle of a fight? That's what's going to fucking happen? Because that's what would happen is your face would get shot with a laser. Yeah. The whole That whole scene just felt like... this. That whole fight actually felt like stuff is happening because it had to happen in the novels, but it doesn't feel like it makes any sort of sense in this movie. Yeah. Like, um, for instance, why did Angelo fire his own claw into his own cockpit. Yeah! It's because he disagreed with bananas. Yeah. And you have to disagree... You have to be crazy to disagree with bananas. But wait, did bananas hijack his suit and make him do that? Or did he no, do that to no, 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 no. Bananas was just... His line after that was like, what? You shot after... You shot at your own men? What the hell? 
Oh no no that I, that was fucking ridiculous. What I mean is the way that Angelo was like his suit was destroyed was that he fired his own claw into his own cockpit. Oh, I mean that's sort of what I was thinking because I was like, whoa, okay, that seems like Bananas has some ill will to do. But I was yes. like, no, I think that was intentional. That was him just being like, no, nah, I can't take this anymore. I have to destroy myself. Rah. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. None, none of the stuff of Angelo in this episode makes sense to me. Angelo, we were saying this before the show, should have been like written out of this OAV in the planning stages. Mm-hmm. Like he, I don't really see what purpose he serves. He has one good scene, which is when he like finds Full Frontal's corpse, and I quite like that. I was like, ah, oh, that's quite heartbreaking. But aside from that, I didn't see his point in this entire show. Yeah, they gave him too much screen time. I like his mobile suits, but uh, too much screen time. God, I feel like we're being so negative about this episode. But we it are? Feels- we are? We are just being like, wait, we can have these conversations with Gundam? That's also where this conversation's been. It's just like, yeah. Because, I mean, like, I feel what you mean. It was like, I, like, I feel like something in me should hate this. Because it's just like, I waited this long and you gave me this? Come on. Come on, Sunrise. Why you gotta, why you gotta put like- me like that? It feels like with all the build-up, so much hinged on this episode. And I, I, it almost felt like they weren't aware of that when they were making it. Like, like yo, I was like, yo, Sunrise, I suggested this to people. Yeah. <laughs> it does feel that way. It feels like the first two episodes were designed to be like, yo, like this is how Gundam is going to be. This is going to be the biggest fucking event imaginable. It's going to be like a movie. Those first two episodes to me just feel like we're doing everything we can to make this as big as possible. And people who don't even seem to like Gundam or even the rest of this show seem to like the first episode. Mm-hmm. But like with that in mind, why did you kind of, it kind of ended like any other Gundam show, I feel. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't feel like anything different. I was just thinking, y'all should have done more magic throughout the show if you're going to give me this shit. <laughs> but, uh, it's weird, like there is other magic in the show, it just doesn't feel... Like magic. Yeah, like, there's the whole thing in episode four when the Shamblo and the Unicorn, like... When their, psych- when their psychic energies resonate and, like, yes. Goku comes and, like, gives them, like, the power to destroy everything. And But, I mean, like, I suppose, like, all the new type stuff is basically magic. Like, when, in episode three, when he's fighting Marita and, like, he just sees into Marita's heart. So, like, yeah, I suppose to anyone outside Gundam, this would be really magical. Like, after, I guess, thinking about this... As we're talking, I was like, huh. I still feel like, though, the way that was done in episode three felt cinematic and, and cool and interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, it, like going to the POV shop for um, Marita's memories and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the music, I felt the camera, like, it all felt really cinematic. Whereas, like, Marita's death in this episode to me felt like kind of how it would be done in any Gundam anime. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, I was just so sad. Like, I jokingly throw out, like, the reaction picture of these two kids watching JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I was like, that was me when Marita died. I was like, nah, that wasn't me. Like, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, like, when they did that, like, I was, I saw that for the first time, like, I was actually in tears. <laughs> like, well, yeah. not tears. I was misting up, and I was just like, this is the saddest fucking thing I've ever seen. Like, was there, that. there any scenes in this episode that gave you that reaction? Like, honestly, I was trying to cry because I was like, I feel like I should cry because like, this is this, this, this build up, but it's not going anywhere. But I was just like, nah, filmically, this fails to really grant me any emotions. 
which is funny yeah. because like someone like made a post like on Twitter or something like, "Oh, I'm gonna watch Gundam Unicorn," and I just said, "You will see the tears of time," like as like the old Zeta reference. And like, like later after the episode, I was like, man, I was really crying. I was like, you, you didn't get the joke. <laughs> you didn't get the joke. I thought you were supposed uh, to be a Gundam fan. <laughs> um, yeah. I didn't feel distraught either, though. I felt like, okay, they did everything they needed to. They explained what Laplace's box was. They gave enough closure, I thought. Um, and I, I don't like... I don't dislike the show from this episode. I just feel like this episode was like the precipice where all of this could have been leading up to something really cool and really cinematic and interesting. Or it could end like any other Gundam show. Yeah. And as it stands, I just feel like, yeah, Unicorn started really well and the rest of it is a good Gundam show. You know who I wish they had to do this? I wish they actually would have changed directors and I wish they would have gotten like Imagawa to do it. Oh my god. Well, yeah. Um, like, we would be tearing up. We'd probably be crying right now if Imagawa did this. I don't know. It's so weird. Like, I still feel, personally, those first two episodes, like, feel like they're directed by some amazing director. An entirely different show? Yeah, it does. Maybe not an entirely different show, but... Well, it feels like a different show tonally in terms of, like, how it's directed, at least. Actually, I am upset. I want to be crying over Marita. We should be. We all like Marita. We both think Marita's a good character. Japan America. loves Marita. America loves Marita. Everyone fucking loves Marita. We should all be able to join in tears of Marita's death. But I was just like, I can't get sucked into this. Like, maybe the three other people who watched this and, like, turned off their brains. Because I was just like, I was like, you can, you can cry from, like, a bad death in, like, see destiny or whatever like you can you can cry to this i guess yeah you can cry over anything at that point but i feel like at that point uh, part of it's just a time issue i guess like they didn't have enough time to do all this stuff well they had enough time to do this stuff but not well and if they were going to do it well they would have to significantly change the way the novel went down like remove characters like angelo which they weren't willing to do because that's not how anime works usually anime is very um faithful to what's adapting yeah. It's very rare that it's not. So it's maybe too much just to expect it not to be. It's like if something would be really rushed in an adaptation, it's going to be really rushed because they're not going to change it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, man, I, I was like, how? I mean, I guess, I, like, a couple days ago I was thinking, man, I wish this was made in the 80s. Why is that? Because, like, Japan would have had all the money and they just would have been like, yo, yeah, okay, three hours. Like the third Gundam movie. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to tell. It, it's so strange, though. You'd think that, like, if anything would have the money to not be rushed and to take as much time as they want, it would be Gundam. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if anything would... Because it was like, this has been the most successful OAV of all time. Mm-hmm. So why should this feel rushed? It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it probably comes down to, like, how many kits can we sell? Mm-hmm. Episodes, which like, is it's probably to do with it being a toy commercial. I feel like we should be more upset because I mean, like when when like we were talking about this earlier, I was just like, oh okay, like I just cleared away some clouds, and like there should be something afterwards. You know well, what I, I mean? Like, yeah, I do. I feel like the reason we're not upset is because like 
we also buy the toys. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't buy the toys. Um, <laughs> the reason we're not upset is that it's like, okay, listen, uh, the problems of this are implementation. Like, it wasn't like it was a horrendous ending. It did get. It did do the bare minimum of what it was meant to do, in that it gave us closure. It explained what Laplace's box was. It. It had, yeah, it had like a, it wrapped up its final conflict. So, and there was nothing horrendously bad. It was just like, a, it felt like a bunch of scenes that could have been done better. Yeah. And it's hard to get angry at that. You just feel more disappointed. I mean, I feel like that's, that's even worse than anger. It is worse than anger, but it's what we got, you know? And it, it's the kind of disappointment that makes you go like, I don't even know if I want to muster up the anger for this show. Yeah. I was like, I suggested this to people. I should feel ashamed. I yeah, know. but whatever. Fucking yeah, it, it, it. They had. I really do feel like they had an opportunity of the first two episodes to make like a Gundam show that anyone could enjoy, and I do think they dropped the ball. Yeah. Well, God, that's depressing. Yeah, because I mean, like, it's not even really hate. It's just like, I still love you, man, but. Here's like, the other thing, though. I had a moment this, like that. Oh, go on. Go on. Oh, sorry. Um, if, yeah. if this, no, say what your moment was, actually, and then I'll, then I'll say I was it. just like, I was just like having like a, a friend of mine who was just like really um, disappointed in someone. He said, yeah, I was like, they didn't pull through for me. And I ain't even mad. I'm disappointed. And like someone else said, it was like, you know, that's even worse, right? And he was like, yeah. Like to me, I was like, damn. It's like this yeah, got a little too real to me because I want to feel something. I also feel like if the entire show had been directed and paced and felt the same way as episode seven, if the entire OEV had been that way, our action would be like pretty fun Gundam show. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's only because it got off to such an amazing start that we're like, why did you become just a Gundam show? Mm-hmm. You said you were going to be more than that, yeah. and it, it didn't. But is that really something to get angry about? I don't know. It's more something to be like, that's a pity. And it's the fact that if it had all been aired over the course of a year, we would have maybe had less of a reaction. But it's because we had to wait four years and the wait between every episode, the anticipation got more and more. And it felt like the buildup was more and more. And it felt like an event. Yeah. And at the end of that four years, when it doesn't like fucking give us an orgasm, mm-hmm. kind of, what were we watching this for four years for? Yeah. And I mean, I just remember like, AWO said something. I was like, "Oh no, it's looking like it's being another Gundam show." And like, I was like, "No, fuck you, Daryl. Fuck all you. It's gonna be the greatest fucking thing ever." And then like, "Fuck you for the insight." (laughs) (laughs) Right, Daryl was totally correct. Every single episode became more and more Gundam-y. Like, like really, I did. Then again, I like episode six a lot, but still, it is still that kind of thing where every episode got more and more ridiculous. The dialogue got more and more hammy. Like in the first two episodes, I felt the dialogue was hammy in a way that felt I liked how hammy it was. Mm -hmm. Like it was hammy, but it was it was quite like precise in a way. All the conversations, I was like, you could see what they were doing, and it was interesting, and they were fleshing out the world. But by episode four, the dialogue got hammy in a way where you're like, I'm kind of embarrassed by this. Mm-hmm. I but I mean, really- like, it was, I was just sort of thinking, there's like one line where Benadger is talking to Full Frontal in episode six, where he says, I would do it for everyone. And I was thinking, like, maybe if Benadger said something along the lines of, you know, it's like, 
if I did have the power, I'd, I'd make sure everyone could get some, you know? Like, maybe if he was actually, like, if they toned down the way Benazir would speak and just be more like, maybe make Benazir a little bit more reserved instead of, like, out there, you know? Yeah, I think that if you made Benazir less... Uh, less... Over- and, like, aggressively optimistic and youthful then the entire show's writing would feel better. Mm-hmm. I think if you made Benadger just a little bit more level-headed and a little bit more relatable and human, the writing of the entire show would be so much better. Because I think part of the reason, looking back, that episode one and two are so well-written is that Benadger doesn't talk that much in those two yeah. episodes. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that people consider episode four a low point is it's probably when Benadger talks most. Mm-hmm. So I really think it's the, the protagonist of this show that... that brings that stuff down. This is why I prefer Riddy over Benazir, because I don't have a problem with Riddy's dialogue. To me, that's what Riddy's like. Riddy's a lot more relatable and human and flawed. Mm-hmm. Well, Benazir, like, referring back to the Alice and stuff, is the mythic figure. Yes, yeah. And he just wants to return to that mythic relationship between father and son, which explains the giant Cardius in this guy. Was It's meant to be, like, something you embed within... The sort of, um, I guess, tradition, right? This is supposed to be the tradition of fatherhood that we carry on and push forward is the sort of warm feelings, even if Cardius in real life was probably a dick. Because, I mean, episode one, we see Cardius just be like, good job. And the yeah. pilot who's very visibly suffering and, and like, in pain is just like, thank you. And he's just like, nah, this is the machine. I'm like, wow, what an asshole. This, uh, this Punch him in the face. This reminds me of something that a guy on Twitter said, a guy called Philarchius, and he did the Anamanachronism blog, mm-hmm. which is a good anime um, analysis blog. And he said that like, he, likes, he seemed to really enjoy Unicorn. It was like one of his favorite space operas um, of the last couple of years. But one of the criticisms he pointed out, or not criticisms, but one of the things he pointed out anyway, was that there's almost like a weird like feudalist sort of message to it, where Benazir is um, inherited, he inherits his powers from his father and he's in defense of this woman who's like the royalty character. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is like a very conservative message mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, it, it kind of calls back to almost like the relationship between like a knight and like his queen sort mm-hmm. of thing. Well, I mean, they, they forward that in episode one when they talk about the lady and the unicorn. Yeah. Because- I mean, like, in the tapestry, you have the black lion, you have all the other animals, and you have the unicorn, and that's the setting, and that's the drama. The black lion is meant to be the sort of fierce protector of the lady's virginity, and, like, unicorn is supposed to represent that virginity, the sort of thing that's this mythical thing. And, like... Oh, is that what's happening in that tapestry? Yeah, that's what's happening in the tapestry. Yeah, the whole thing of unicorns in... European folklore is that they would impale your virgins with their horn and murder them. That makes sense. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really fit actually what happens in the show because the unicorn in the show is the kind of virginal, innocent thing. And Riddy's, who's the black lion, is like the harsh reality. Yeah. So, that's really well, fit. I mean, like, I think that's one, that, that's one thing that the unicorn can mean and i actually do think that that still can sort of play out because like 
that's what everyone's sort of afraid of is what if we're just going to kill everyone by opening up the box by starting this other um zeonic war because that's what they're worried about is the unicorns this beast of possibility but possibility can also go towards the direction of danger yeah it, it's so weird the the writers seem really aware that Benazir is like overly idealistic and wrong about things like in the Loney battle, I, I was so confused because it was almost like, yeah, the writer knows this is youthful and idealistic and dumb, but is also commanding it in, mm -hmm. in a way. And I felt the same way with Keo and Gundam Age, from what I saw, where it was like the writer was both saying, this is really silly, but also saying, but isn't this great that he's being this youthful and idealistic and naive? Yeah. Which to me is just like, Rosetta comes in and says, no, nah, that's stupid. Yeah, meals. Um, Caps and Zeta is basically Benazir. Like he's the one who says, "Hey, maybe we should kill," and is like obsessed with um, a female character and stuff and, and all those things. And he's fucking shown to be idealistic and naive. And Camille's the one we're meant to root for, and he, you know, does what he has to do and is flawed. And you know. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I also feel like that's a hilarious sort of internal debate conversation, is because that's what people say about like quote-unquote performance debate is that oh y'all ain't y'all shit ain't real blah 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 but um i don't know that's its own conversation to be had with all kinds of nuances and complications and problematics that i probably shouldn't dive okay. into right now because we're talking about porn. i think we are going uh i think we're exhausting what we're talking about we could probably talk about this for like seven hours but i think we've hit the main beats yeah um, i think the thing we have to talk about to finish it all off, is the whole thing this was all leading to, um, Laplace's box. And Laplace's the box. Laplace's box? Yes. <laughs> and what it is. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you think of that reveal? Um, do you think it works as they set it up? Um, do you think it was effectively revealed? Um, I mean, like, I'm... Actually, I kind of liked it where, like... The way they set it up in the show, where um, you see Siam Vist like showing them the monument, and then like um, Audrey, I mean Maneva, and Bernard just being like, "What? What?" And then you ha cut to Riddy's explanation and why he and his father were so afraid of the box's secret getting out, and why like the prayer might be a curse and all that jazz. And that I think it plays well into it and i feel like this is sort of where they plan the episode around this and the new type magic carpet ride was like the two main focal points of the episode and uh, yeah because everything was written around this because going back and marathoning it was like okay all of this is built up to talking about new types and the Federation's fear of a new type of race which would be rooted in space instead of the Earth. And do, do you think that it makes sense um, as something that could overthrow the Federation? Um, huh. As something that could overthrow the Federation... Mm, maybe? Um, to me, it still seems like a scandal more than anything else because like it's sort of what like when martha vist was saying we're just like all this is gonna do is like rattle up like radicals and stuff and like no one's gonna happen 
nothing's going to come of this. But yeah. I mean, like, to me, it highlights the sort of insecurity of the Federation more so than anything else. Because the Federation feels its um, insecurities and vulnerabilities at the sort of ideological low point where it's just like, okay, all that's left is violence. And to me, yeah. that's the sort of truth of government. It's just like, um, once you take away the ideological facade, it's people with guns. So, I mean, I, I feel that there were some people who were saying, like, oh, why wasn't the plastic box, like, a powerful piece of technology or, like, a really powerful Gundam? Or, like, why was it just this ideological um, thing? But I feel like the way the show had been developed up to that point, it could only be ideological. Mm -hmm. Like, since the show put that level of emphasis on conversations and dialogue and on, like, the dichotomy between these two systems of Zeon and the Federation, new types and stuff like that, it had to be ideological for that show to function. Mm -hmm. And to expect anything else by the end of that show is ridiculous. Like, I'm very happy for being purely ideological. Yeah. I do feel like I like Riddy's explanation of what it is, but I didn't particularly like the whole um, slide, like IMAX slideshow. <laughs> I was like, really, guys, after seven episodes, you're going to have it this way. I didn't think it was composed very well, like, the little floating Benazir and Beneva at the side of the screen, or it just, like, flips through a slideshow of how it happened. I was like, that's kind of silly. Um, <laughs> and I, I think, like, while I think it should be ideological, it did seem like a very... It didn't seem like a huge deal to me, and it, I didn't quite feel like they supported the idea that the Federation could have, like, saw new types coming. Like, the idea that the Federation just knew that there would be, like some new form of human race in space, and we'll include that in the charter. Like, you could argue that they got rid of that um, to stop the space colonists from, like, revolting and, like, using that as, like, a, as a, a symbol. But I would have removed that just because it's kind of dumb and doesn't really belong in a constitution. Yeah? You we mean sep separation? Articles for... Or not separation, but articles for a new form of race? Yeah, it's just silly. Like, why... You wouldn't start form a new country and go, if we ever have psychics from this country, we'll let you in the government. <laughs> like, it just doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, I suppose that, like, that doesn't make sense, but they didn't foresee psychics. No, true. But, I mean, like, actually, I think in the context of Gundam, it still makes sense to me, because one of the first things you hear about in the Gundam movies is talking about how humanity is adapting to space because sure. humanity adapts to life in general adapts to its environment and this is sort of i think to me like something that i've seen in a lot of um conversations with some friends and um like native american spiritualists who are just like i, I think that's the sort of not great term because it doesn't seem to carry the weight with it that i quite want it to carry but um, it's like some of my friends, and they just be like, yeah, we're children of Earth. We are born of the Earth, and the Earth molds us, and the Earth gives us life, right? There's that relationship to the environment. But in space, it's just like they can't even have that because they're not born on Earth. So what they have is they have the colony, and all they have is human um, humanity's potential to create its own environment, which I sort of felt like um, jived with um, like some architects ideas on how we should go about like constructing cities and things like that to make cities 
more human and less horrendous to live in because yeah. as it is the state of our cities and urban landscapes is awful it's terrible but um like but i feel like part of this has to do with gundam essentially being a product of the late 1970s yeah and in the 1970s like psychic abilities was a huge part of science fiction yeah and it was a huge part of popular culture in general and I think a lot of that comes from, like, the 60s drug movement and this whole idea of, like, like opening up your mind and, like, broadening your horizons of what your mind can do. And there's that whole new type idea. They don't really mention this as much in the newer shows, but it's actually based off a completely false urban legends, which is that humanity only uses, like, 10% of its yeah. brain, uh, which isn't true in the slightest. Yeah. It's meant to be that new type is the other 90%. And a lot of that, I believe, came from, like, didn't that come from, like, mushrooms and stuff and LSD? <laughs> and I'm using the other 90% kind of thing. Yeah. And that's blurred over into a lot of science fiction. And Gundam is really born out of, like, Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinlein, like, that golden age of, sci- of, of sci-fi, of mm-hmm. literary sci-fi. And that was a big part of it. And I think maybe if, I, if it was a show from the 1970s, I wouldn't be fine with that. Just in a modern era, I think the idea of gaining psychic abilities or whatever next step of evolution just seems dumb, you know? And maybe, I mean, like, if the whole, yeah. maybe if the whole show had had, like, more of a 70s aesthetic to it, I would have been more forgiving of that. But, I mean, like, I think it also sort of harkened back, harkens back to the idea of what race is. Because yeah. the, the root of race is literally roots, to be rooted in a place. Huh. And to me, it's just like, to be rooted in space means you don't have roots. All you have <laughs> is possibility. Yeah, and that's how they kind of talk about it. Like, isn't the wording, like, a new space-adapted human race? Yeah. So it could almost be a cultural thing. Like, if humanity, like, it would be interesting if they said, like, oh, maybe this applies to, like, the culture of Zeon. Like, almost becoming part of Zeon was, like, becoming a new human race in a way, or, like, a new a new race. Yeah. Uh, or a new identity, and they should, like, include the more in the Earth Federation. No, I, I don't actually dislike the reveal too much. I think I'm pretty much fine with it. Um, do, do you feel... Have you heard the argument that it's kind of like a fascistic thing? A f- fascistic? Yeah, like a, like it's kind of a fascist. Like it's like saying, oh, new types should be allowed priority in government over normal people, and like, uh, oh, almost like a yeah. weird authoritarian. Um. Yeah, I can sort of see that. I can see that being the sort of fascistic thing. Because, I mean, you're still working with these sort of, I guess, biological notions of what race are, which came out of eugenics, which came out of the sort of same mindsets that created totalitarianism, but um, at the root, I guess, Nazism and all that jazz. But, like, I didn't necessarily read that as new types being over people. I read that as new types being, or I guess, people in space being underrepresented. Yeah, that's what I said. So just like, no, we need to give them priority in order to create a space within government and, I guess, these sort of human relationships um, and all that jazz. So Yeah, we see throughout the show that space noids are treated as, like, a lesser class and we're told they don't have the right to vote and things. So within that context, I think it makes more sense. Yeah. And I guess um, it's also an interesting place for, like, I guess, blackness studies and post-colonial studies because... Yeah. Because, I mean, like, reading Fanon, I, I can sort of felt there's something that, a way that we can go about talking and thinking about Gundam like that, but... 
But then, like, from a post-colonial perspective, it becomes so weird because, like, yeah, you can read Zion that way, but their uniform and dress sense and their actions also is, like, um, have connotations of colonials themselves. Like, yeah. the way Zion looks are, to me, like, Prussian colonial soldiers. I mean, that's the criticism that I think is sort of being waged against Full Frontal It was... All Full Frontal was wanting to do was to engage in this sort of hegemonic struggle, even yeah. though hegemonic struggle is what created the colonies and what made the colonies into this sort of miserable place, right? And, and I, I feel like felt, that's felt sort like, of what's uh, being built into Unicorn. I felt like they were also suggesting that Full Frontal and Siam Vist were essentially the same. Like, I felt like they say that Siam Vist was like a terrorist who took advantage of... Um, Laplace's box to bar a confederation to building his own empire. Essentially, mm -hmm. Fulfonto was a terrorist who wanted to take uh, Laplace's box and use it to barter into creating the co-opside prosperity sphere. Essentially, like, it was saying that if he got the box, he would use it in the exact same way that Siam used it. Yeah. And that's why the way they have that scene constructed is it's like Fulfonto on one side and Siam on the other because they're, like, basically the same sort of people. Yeah. Which is why I was trying to say some things i was trying to be like yeah okay this is sort of i guess a struggle to get away from these um nationalism towards national consciousness is mm -hmm. i that's the distinction is on the one hand you have the struggle against the colonizer in a sense to become going back into the world and to have relations with others and being able to stand on equal footing but, I mean, you also have this sort of struggle for hegemony, which we also see before, which solidifies itself and is essentially controlled by the sort of oligarchical ruling class. And that is what is represented by Zeon and all that. Yeah. Which is why right. they do look like an empire, which is, I mean, a sort of complex story and way to go about um, how this post-colonial, I guess, or colonial struggle is happening. I prefer to use that term. But yeah, I feel like, like intentionally or not, okay, I think that th there is a pretty interesting universe here. Like, intentionally or not, this is a fairly fragmented and, like, um, complex universe they've created. And uh, I'll give the show that. I think that's quite impressive. All right, I think we're done, right? I think we're <laughs> okay. I think we're, yeah. We need final, final thoughts. Mm -hmm. I, I'll ask, um, okay, would you recommend Gundam Unicorn to people having seen the final episode? And also, where do you think Gundam Unicorn ranks as a Gundam series? Where do I think it ranks as a Gundam series? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know what? I think for what it's worth, I'd still recommend it to people. Because, like... I don't know if I'd recommend it over other Gundam shows, but I'd still recommend it because I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and episode one and two is so much promise. I suppose I'd be more hesitant now and I'd probably be like, hey, let's watch like 0080. But like, yeah. I feel like the problem with suggesting those shows is like people would be like, oh, that's like from like years ago. That's not new. Yep, that is the problem. Um. In terms of its relationship to other Gundam series, I uh, I I I like 0080 more. Mm 
I like the third part of the movie more. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. Oh. <laughs> okay. Would you recommend it to other people, or, um, you know, how do you rank it amongst other Gundam shows? I think if, if the whole show had been tonally and qualitatively consistent with the first two episodes, I would have recommended it to any sci-fi fan. Mm-hmm. I really would have. But I think as it stands, I would recommend this to anime fans who I know can appreciate good but flawed anime. <laughs> Um, and in a way, I, I feel similar to Giant Robo now. I think Giant Robo is a more full work, but I think Giant Robo is like an amazing show that has tons of fucking flaws. And I love Giant Robo, but I would never really recommend it to a non-anime fan. I might. It depends on what, what they're into. If they love like superhero shows, maybe I'd recommend them. And if someone I know loves sci-fi, space opera, epics, I'd probably show them Gonna Be Unicorn. But aside from that, yeah, it becomes more, more difficult. I mean, as a Gundam show now, I think it's not like the insane, amazing, redefining epic that the first two episodes made it out to be. But I think it's a good Gundam series. Um, I think almost how good the first two episodes are make the more gundam elements seem more ridiculous, and you kind of realize how dumb some of the stuff in Gundam is through that. If that makes any sense? Oh, God, yes. Um, and I also just think that, like, it's a very rushed work, and it's their first time adapting a novel, and I would hope they learned some stuff from how they planned this, because it didn't seem like they planned it at all. Uh, when even after they added on a feature-length final episode, it still felt like a compilation movie. Um, but having said that, <laughs> this is going to sound really dumb. My favorite Gundam shows now, I think, are like 0080, third Gundam movie, Gundam Bill of Fires, which I haven't even finished yet. <laughs> that doesn't disappoint. But from like what I saw, Gunna Build Fighters is fucking good. It can't disappoint, honestly. <laughs> it's but all it's trying to do is be a fun robot show, and I think that makes it easier to be a good show. Um, then Gunna Unicorn probably, but on a bad day, I might say I prefer to Gunna Unicorn now. <laughs> so much hinge on this last episode. So much. You know, we still need to do our Giant Robo episode, and I, I actually want to say that I disagree with you on Giant Robo. That I actually would recommend this to people who aren't even familiar with anime at all, but. Uh... But not, like, everyone, right? Like, you'd probably... If you knew someone was into that kind of thing. I mean, I showed it to um, evangelical Christians, and they loved it. Oh, my God. Giant Robot, I think, is a more complete story than this, because it's not based on a novel that it has to, like... And also, I I just think that Imagawa, like, knew what the fuck he was doing. I don't know. Yeah, we should do an episode on that. Giant Robot was amazing. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Um, It's very comparable, though, to Giant Robot, I think, in a lot of ways. Because it's meant to be our generation's giant robo. Well, yeah, that's what I feel. It's because of how cinematic it is. And it's what it reminds me of. But yeah, whatever. Gu- Gundam is is always flawed. So I guess it's just how it is. Yeah. I, I, someone, someone tweeted recently that Gundam is the only fandom where you're essentially tricking other people into being interested so they can share your pain. <laughs> and I was like, that is so fucking true. That is that is so true. That's exactly what Gundam is. Yeah, I mean, I got fans seem happy. None of them. <laughs> I gotta say that seems so true now because, like, my roommate pushed it off so that he could marathon it, and I'm just like, 
why would you do that? You can't love and appreciate Gundam the way I do it. Because <laughs> then you have to sit through all this and judge it with those eyes instead of the eyes that were waiting in anticipation for four years. But maybe if we marathoned it, we'd have liked it more. Maybe. They seem to like it. I mean, you, you got into Gundam for Gundam Unicorn, didn't you? Yes. And G-Gundam. Gundam Unicorn. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I liked G-Gundam, but that was just like a television thing, you know? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, Alright. I still, I still love you, Gundam Unicorn, but <laughs> you could have done better. I'm just disappointed. I feel like... <sighs> Like you, you could, you got a C when you could have gotten a B plus at least. That's that's so heartbreaking to say. <laughs> yeah, but I agree with you. I oh well. I want to be the nice teacher. I want to give you the good grade, but like you didn't come to class ever, bro. No, for like half the year you were just gone, and then when you did hand in your thesis, it was it was okay. It wasn't great. Yeah. Okay. Bye, everybody. What a downer to end the show. Sounds <laughs> 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 like we're going to kill ourselves after this. <laughs> not going to do it. I'm working on some new stuff. Internet. I'm working on a Who's Gay Today segment for the DAP yes. podcast. That'll fill the hole. You know, like, the first episode of Who's Gay Today is, is going to be, like, the homoeroticism <laughs> yes. between bananas and... Variety. Good. Well, did you see that image that people posted of him like holding the unicorn and then like their faces? No. Manga. Oh, I'll, I'll see if I can send it to you later. They just like got like faces from like a famous Yaoi manga, put it over Bataja already. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Um. Okay, show over, I guess. Bye.